Hi, everybody. And uh, first of all, Happy New Year. Uh, welcome back to Back in a Lifeboat. This is episode 15 um, on our podcast when we watch and recap every episode of the series Timeless. As usual, I'm Helen and I'm here with my co-host Heather. Hey, guys. And today we're covering season one, episode 15, Public Enemy number one. You know the drill. As usual, we're going to go do a quick episode overview, then we'll break down the episode. We'll talk about over overall thoughts, Heather's theories for what's coming, especially with the finale coming up next uh, next uh, episode. I'm excited. I just I just want to hang up so that Heather can go see the finale, like the season <laughs> finale at this point. So we're just we're just going to do that quick. Uh, but actually, we we have a little bit extra for you at the end of this episode. Uh, we will be fortunate enough. Uh, to speak to um, one of the writers of a couple episodes of this show, so uh, The Lost Generation that we covered last time, David Hoffman, uh, who also was the historical consultant uh, throughout the entire run of the show. Um, so yeah, he's agreed to talk to us, and we're very excited for that. Uh, and we'll um, add that to the end of the episode, so stick around. Uh, to begin with, before uh, we get into the op episode overview, um, going back to talk about the main cast, former and current projects, uh, today we're going to talk about Malcolm, Malcolm Barrett, who plays uh, Rufus Carlin. Uh, turns out, and I'm extremely ashamed, he is, um, I think, the only sort of main cast or main cast adjacent that has more credits, acting credits at least, than Malcolm was Matt Frewer. So he's actually our, the main cast with the most acting credits. And he's he's been um, active for a while. Um, and if you follow Malcolm on uh, Instagram, he posted uh, um, a clip of him in, um, I forgot which Law and Order, I think it was SVU. Um, as viewer, I don't know one of the Law and Order, and that he he had like a small role in one of the Law and Order because everyone has to go through Law and Order. <laughs> but <laughs> At yeah, some point, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anytime there's so many Law and Order, and there were some of them have lasted for so long that everybody and their neighbors uh, have been in Law and Order, uh, with some exception that all go over in this episode um but yeah um as far as the main things um uh he's been into a show called into the dark i think that was uh one of the uh the ones he had a lot of credit he was uh in better off dead and like i haven't seen i think anything that he's done and when you look at the credit for like where he's done multiple episodes they're very well rated and i've seen nothing uh obviously i have a lot of work to do um i did see uh i started watching the boys uh just because i knew malcolm had a small role in this claudia has a small role in it uh goran too uh and like for Malcolm, at least it's a it's a fairly small recurring role, but it's it's actually pretty hilarious. Like there's a 
some background to it that is really funny. Um, but yeah, uh, he had a new show uh, this year called Average Joe that looked really good. Uh, I again, I haven't, I haven't gotten around to watching it, but it looks it looks really interesting. Um, hopefully, I don't know if they were renewed or if it was a miniseries. I know. And there's also um something called the Changeling. I haven't really seen much about it, so I don't know how that did. No, it looks like TV series uh, for average Joe. So hopefully they'll be picked up for a second season. That'd be great. Oh, cool. But yeah, he's had uh, he's had a lot of uh, like a few recurring roles and a few one of two. And uh, actually, fairly recently, he was in a um, movie called Dylan and Zoe with Claudia Dumit. Uh, and it actually, I need to watch it because it looked really cute. Like I saw the trailer; it looked really cute, really interesting, and I don't know. It just, um, I love Claudia too. She's sweet. Uh, oh, also, I forgot to mention, um, unfortunately, uh, Heather was banned from social media for Timeless <laughs> Day, but many and I. A self imposed band. I was very good. I did not go on. I know. She was <laughs> extremely gracious um i we felt terrible with many so many and i followed on social media when actually mostly many because i was at work uh through most of it like literally uh so sean ryan did um like a q a on twitter and he started like half an hour after i got into work and he he stopped like he put a stop to questions literally like 15 minutes after I got out of work that day. <laughs> so Manny's the the one that was uh, great enough to follow everything on Twitter and repost everything. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll have a small bonus episode um, talking about that in details that Heather can uh, watch in like six months or so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> can listen to more, more exactly. Um. But yeah, that's about it. Like lots happen uh, in uh, in the last few weeks with the holidays. We're not sure how to podcast anymore. If we ever knew how to do it at some point, I don't know. <laughs> but um, let's get back into it. So this episode is public enemy number one. The description on Rotten Tomatoes was. Lucy, Wed, and Rufus try to enlist the help of Elliot Ness after Flynn lands in 1931 Chicago to call in a favor from notorious gangster, gangster Al Capone. A clue leads, leads the team to a crucial revelation about Rittenhouse. Um, this episode originally aired uh, February 13th, 2017. Oh, I just realized they talk about the Valentine's Day massacre, and this was released like the day before valentine's day oh yeah i wonder if they made the reference on purpose or not um probably not i bet it just landed that way because like that's he's pretty famous for that yeah yeah but i mean no the fact the fact that it it aired just around valentine's day and like it wasn't really relevant to the episode so i don't know i wouldn't be surprised with what we've seen with the little details that they've incorporated in the episode, I wouldn't be surprised if it was on purpose. Just put it that way. Uh, 
Uh, this episode was written by Matt Whitney and Anselm Richardson. Uh, and we talked about the two of them before, I'm pretty sure. Um, and uh, it was directed by Guy Ferland, and it's the first of two episodes that he will do. Uh, the second one's going to be in season two because it's not the next. I forgot which episode it is, but it's not the next, so I know it's in season two. Uh, notable shows he worked on Elementary. Uh, he did like 22 episodes. SWAT, The Night Agent, Sean Ryan, Sh Sean Ryan Show. Amazing show. Go watch. Absolutely go watch. It's a really good one. Um, and there's, I like the writing style. It's kind of similar. Like the the vibe is pretty similar to Timeless, I find. In the, like the conspiracy theory, yeah, secret organization uh, sense it's much it's a much more like serious dark show um than timeless but it has that conspiracy theory um, not theory conspiracy element to it um guy freeland also worked on once upon a time homeland the walking day uh daredevil like the good one the charlie cox one uh, and uh, three episodes of Chicago PD. Yeah, I looked Season it up. Eight, it was, nine, um, ten. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember the one from eight so much. I think it's because it was a void episode. Nine, I think it was a Ruzik and Burgess episode, and ten was a Burgess episode. Um, ah, so yeah, a little bit of Burzik writer, or at least Burgess writer, or director. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. I guess now it's time to get into the episode and get back in the lifeboat. We open the episode with Flynn uh, in a church and looking forlorn and a priest comes talk to him and dude has no idea what, it, what he's in store for. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> um Flynn's super conflicted is wondering how to go on um and he takes the priest on a bit of a theological ride uh before asking for absolution like that that poor prince is so confused yeah I feel like it's interesting that we see Flynn in churches often not well, necessarily for like religious reasons like I think this is the first time we've seen that but you know, he was in that abandoned church for a long time and just kind of like this, like, you know, this, uh, what do you call it? Like his divine mission yeah, is but to rid the world of Rittenhouse. So it's yeah. kind of interesting. But he mentions that his wife was the Catholic and who dragged him to church. So I feel like maybe going in the church or in like any kind of a yeah, religious place, exactly. That's his connection to her. And that's kind of, comforting in some ways yeah which makes it interesting too like where we see Wyatt on this and where we see Flynn on this and him Flynn now asking like is there absolutely anything that's just meant to be if you can change all of it but again like it's, so, it's sorry no no so it's just I just thought it was interesting like how we see their journeys kind of moving at this point both of them yeah, wanting their think, wives back yeah it's the continuation I think of of the path that we've seen where mm -hmm. they're getting closer and closer to the same level in the same place. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's he's starting to have doubts, but I guess 
he gets right back on the horse because we'll see what happens. Um, and then we switch to Mason Industries and things are tense. Uh, Gia makes a, a little joke about, I guess this is what North Korea feels like, which, yeah, sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Rufus, like, we see him slip a phone into Gia's pocket uh, under the nose of all the uh, Rittenhouse agents present. And he's telling, uh, he's telling her everything is going to be fine. Yeah. Um, now, first of all, though, like her jacket this episode was really cool. And yes. second, that was a really sweet moment. He just like kisses her and like slips the phone in, and it was like sweet. It's adorable. They're so cute. They're so so cute. This is a big GI. Like it was. A I don't know if it's a episode. big GI episode, but it's a good GI episode. Like it's some yeah. of Gia's best moments, at least so far. Mm-hmm. Um, we see Lucy arriving, assuming that she was cold because and jumped but not quite instead neville uh asked the team to jump to houston 1962 to kill flynn's mother rittenhouse gonna rittenhouse exactly um (laughs) that like he goes like the whole like scene here you're just like yeah this this doesn't seem (laughs) this doesn't seem uh right I'm not no. saying the U.S. government's always right. I'm just saying this seems yeah. extra evil. Uh, but I like it's it's all okay though because Neville insists. Yeah. No, no, you're not gonna do the dirty work. You're just coming along for the right. You have a new tactical commander, agent, uh, not agent. I forgot. Is he captain or lieutenant? I'm I forgot. Not sure. I his forgot name. his name almost immediately. Uh, Sullivan is Sullivan. That's all I remember. I called him not Bam Bam basically through the whole episode. That's actually a <laughs> he was because I was like this that. guy's the opposite of Bam Bam. Pretty much, he's a uh, yeah, he's a delight. Um, he's, yeah, he's, the only thing he's got going for him is that he's going to be ticked down uh, in yeah. the cutest fashion in about like three minutes. Um, yeah. And I love because again. Um, when Bam Bam called Lucy ma'am, she was like, No, Lucy's fine. And this one is like, oh, Yes, ma'am. Like, don't call me ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> like, Mm-mm. no, no, only Wyatt calls her ma'am. Um, yeah, Rufus kind of loses it against Mason. I mean, rightfully so, because he seems to be on board with it. Um, and Rufus and Lucy have no choice but to accept going because it's either that or they get arrested for i forgot 10 to 15 years i'm like if you arrest somebody for that you don't let them go yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's not how that works i mean but it was also they were like this has been authorized by the highest levels and i was like uh (laughs) i mean i really doubt anybody else knows yes i agree because uh, like he seems to imply that the president authorized the mission, yeah. like bullshit. Unless the I mean, president, the president's is house, which you know wouldn't be that surprising. Uh, we saw that some of them already were. But did we see like yeah, Nixon, LBJ? So, but they tend to like being in the in the dark too. So. Um, but I thought there was an interesting parallel here between uh, Wyatt, who's just been to to go back to get rid of the man who he thought killed his wife, but like he was trying to do it 
without killing any innocent person. Yeah. And then Neville and Rittenhouse are just like, no, I'll just kill the mom. Yeah. Who cares? She's a teenager. Who cares? Yeah, it definitely shows, like, who has the heart. Exactly. Um, So they're, they go to prepare for the mission in the locker room. Cahill corners Lucy, and uh, they talk for a bit. Yeah, that's nice. When he says, yeah. like, you have a good heart, I'm proud of you, I'm like, Borf. Like, yeah, shut does, up. Is that, a, is that in, at all, like, a quality Rittenhouse wants people to have? Yeah, no, it's, I think he's trying to act, like, all fatherly. I'm like, no. No. Just don't. No, thank you. Get out. And, like, at the same time, he kind of, like, bribes her with getting Amy back. And, like, yeah. Yeah. And it it almost, like, they're trying to make it look like she's considering it. And we know she's just playing along because they already have their plans. But, yeah, yeah, that whole just, every time he's talking about, like, to Lucy and, like, ugh. Ick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, big ick. Uh, I just, like, he's so slimy. Honestly, like, he's... To me, like, um, like where are we at? I f- like Mason's pretty slimy, but I feel like Cahill, he seems like he has like such the 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 difference between uh like his aspect where he looked like a benevolent grandfather, pretty warm, and like the things he's doing Pediatric he's saying. Surgeon? Ah, yeah, it's just, it's just, give, it gives me, like, the most, like, cold sweats. Yeah. And I, I think that just makes it, like, an extra level that he's a doctor. Because, like, there's an oath to not harm. You know, well, yeah, there's just, like, the, trick you know, on top do of no that. harm yeah. thing. Yeah, it's just, just... You know, like, imagine what he could, he could do, like, if he gets children of like powerful people or would he like the people from Rittenhouse if they need like care for their children he would probably give them like preferential treatment and like mm-hmm. hold the lives of their children against them like ugh, ugh. yeah yep. it's just an extra level of slimy um but anyway we see the lifeboat take off which we actually uh I think it's here that we actually actually see it and I thought we weren't gonna see it again but we do yeah. Um I think it's in season two that we don't see it anymore because budget cuts. Yeah, I mean Yeah, at some point we I don't think see- they need to show it taking off because of how many times they take off during this episode too though. Yeah. So like they need to show it at least once of like, okay, we're jumping. And then you need different ways to show it. That's true. Um yeah, so they take off, uh, and as soon as they land in sixty two, Rufus shots like a trank dart. Uh, in Sullivan, he was so well, nervous. I know, and like Lucy steals his gun and she holds him with her foot to prevent mm-hmm. her from like. Well, no, I think he drops onto her first, yeah. and then like she pulls him off and like holds her with her foot. It's it's hilarious, um. But yeah, they they go straight back. They redirect the lifeboat straight back to the warehouse where Christopher and Wyatt are waiting for them. Uh, but yeah, and in the meantime, we go back to Mason Industries, and uh, I think Gia has just time to see that they've jumped again 
somewhere, but before they can figure out where, a virus crashes the system. And mm -hmm. it's the best one with like the little mason figure with like the head. mason head that says, eat me. <laughs> it's such a Rufus thing. I love it. Um, yeah, Mason gets so mad. So mad. Uh, I think his pride is a little pricked there. Uh, and right away, like, he sells Gia out. Like, no, she's sleeping with him. You can trust her. And so... Right, like, what happened to the captain of the Rhea ship? Like, what happened, Mason? What happened? Why are you yeah, so I know. <laughs> uh, I didn't like him this episode very much. I don't know why. This is such a surprise to me. Right. Uh, you know, considering how much you love Gia, I... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan of Mason. Yeah. So it's I literally think he has something in the works, but I don't I wasn't a big fan. This is literally like the first thing we like Manny and I texted uh Heather. It's like, what do you think of Mason this episode? <laughs> How much yeah. did you want to kill him? <laughs> <laughs> so much. Uh, but yeah, and while that is happening, we cut to credits. Yep. And so we pick back up at the warehouse where Wyatt and Denise are waiting for the lifeboat. And Wyatt is actually really proud of Rufus for I know. Uh, the uh, tranquilizer gun. Uh, Lucy's a little stressed, though, and so is Rufus, because they obviously just stole the lifeboat, and now they technically have, I guess, a prisoner. Um, Wyatt's kind of the calming force, and he like gets them all settled down and tells Lucy that they're going to go to get Amy before they have a... like, But before they have a chance to do that, <laughs> Flynn jumps. So that look like oh, the hugs... <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> First, we, we, we got to get back into the, the, the hugs. Uh, again, it's a much different hug. Uh, is it bad that I'm doing a hug analysis at every episode? Uh, <laughs> um, like, you know, it's a cute hug. Like, she gives Rufus a cute hug. Uh, but then she goes to Wyatt. And it's, at the very least, a full Mississippi longer. And she, like, closes her eyes, and she's so happy. And did you see the way he looks at her, the way Wyatt looks at Lucy? He is yeah. so smitten, and he's so happy that she's happy for him. Like, it... <laughs> Yeah, no, it hit, like, the micro expressions in this scene I wrote later, because it looks like, like, he was really excited for her, but then, like, when they're, like, cutting again, he just looks like he knows he's about to lose something, because obviously after they yeah. get Amy back... Like, things are going to be different. And Lucy doesn't really need to be with him anymore. There's nothing to hold her there. So, like, for him, he's like, okay, yeah, let's go get Amy. But then he's, like, but at the same time thinking He's also, like, so, he's so proud that he just made her this happy. Mm -hmm. He just wants her to be happy. Yep. But, that. yeah, so uh, Flynn jumps. And we see Flynn in Chicago meeting with Al Capone. And he gives him the evidence against him in the tax evasion case that is supposed to take him out and basically jail him for the next several years. And so at first he didn't really believe him. He's like, tax evasion? Yeah, right. Um, but uh, I love all the he, digs they make in that episode. Like, no, tax yeah. evasion, that would have never worked. <laughs> yeah, which, I mean, you would think, like, that's like a crazy one, but it did. Hmm. And so um, after he shows him a letter to his... Uh, from his accountant uh, which Al Capone sends his guys after his accountant to yeah. write no more letters someone's um, someone's not gonna have a good day today no 
But now Al Capone owes Flynn a favor, so that is not good. No. But uh, in the warehouse, the team debates on what to do, and Rufus is starting to doubt like, what he's saying about Flynn, like, all this stuff. And then Wyatt and Denise are wanting to go after Flynn. Lucy wants to go after her sister. And so at the end, though, Wyatt is like, you know, she here's says, the point is like there's no one else it's just us we're the we're the people who can stop them yeah he says there's nobody else but us which yeah. is a f- sentence that comes back later yeah i mean it's like the i feel like it's a pretty common one with like the chosen group of any mm-hmm. like quest basically it's like who else is going to do it but us um so they're at that point in their in their journey but mm-hmm. At Mason Industries, Gia gets a call from Rufus on that burner phone he slipped her, and he asks her to run interference for him and delay Mason as long as possible and tells her he'll explain everything, which I argue he probably should have already done. But yes, anyway, (laughs) she agrees and hangs up right when Neville walks in. And so he's obviously like creepy, but also realizes she's up to something. So he searches her and then eventually finds the phone where she hid it in the room. And she's taken somewhere else, which I also thought this was funny here because Neville uh, calls his crony Singer, which yes. is his name in Supernatural's Bobby, Bobby Singer. Singer. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was a cute little nod. Yeah, that was that was sweet. I like but, I uh, like when they they acknowledge like ac- other actors yeah. like big roles like that. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. And so the team leaves the lifeboat, and we see Denise. Oh, oh sorry, the team leaves in the lifeboat, and we see Denise uh, there by herself. Which is kind of worrying because if they find her, like the team's not around, like she has no defenses. But um, there's also like, um, because by if I if I'm not mistaken, by the time they come back, like Sullivan is not there anymore. Like, what did they do with Sullivan? I don't know. (laughs) Neither. Neither. Question. (laughs) Like at some point, I feel like okay, so had to be Denise that takes care of him yeah i mean she has resources yeah and i mean i don't think i don't think they would like kill him or anything because you know no, he hasn't but, seen I mean, the she warehouse could just, like, but lock him in a car or not lock him in a car lock him in a cell and like a black site like why it was at and nobody would know because she's still a government agent that's she's true. just not in charge of mason industries yeah thing but like five so, years, five years later, Sullivan is still at that black site. Yeah, yeah. For, for, or he's for like God in him. her basement or something. She's like told the kids <laughs> not to go downstairs. <laughs> oh, that's dark. <laughs> this is yeah. not Petey. This is timeless. This yeah, is something yeah. Void would do. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So in Chicago, March thirteenth, nineteen thirty-one, uh, with Lucy is basically outraged because <laughs> they're they're their costumes aren't historically accurate. <laughs> That's coming um, back several times this yeah. episode. Nevertheless, she directs them to the one place where something is happening today, which is the courthouse. And we see Al Capone walking free when he should be. Uh, well, the the trial should be continuing at this point. He wouldn't be convicted until October. But um, the charges have been dropped and Flynn is right behind him. And Flynn and Capone drive away. And then we see Elliot Ness come out of the courthouse, which, hello, Misha Collins. And he's harassed by a journalist, uh, one who he punches. And then Lucy suggests going to him for help. Yeah. Uh, I got a couple of notes here. Um, We can see the Chicago flag at the courthouse, 
which so the colors weren't exactly right like uh it was pointing on imdb and it's true like the shade of blue is not the shade of blue it should be it's much like a much more sky it should be like sky blue and this is like a mm-hmm. darker shade it does however they had a filter on it to make it look cloudier that day it's possible so the scene looks darker yes i wouldn't be surprised uh because it does have the right number of stars on it, it only had two stars mm-hmm uh i just pointed to wikipedia um so one represents the great chicago fire of 1871 and the other one is for the world's columbian exposition and oh, there yeah. would be two more because now it has four stars and the two the other two are added in 1933 so like two years from that moment oh. and they represent like the a commemoration of Fort Dearborn and the Century of Progress Expo of like 33-34. And same like uh, there is six point stars and each point of each star represents something. I just didn't list it here, but that that was interesting. That's cool. I didn't know that. Uh, And about uh, Capone before you get into uh, the history minute. Uh, Al Capone is played by Cameron uh, Gary. I think I saw an interview. I think that's how you say his last name. Uh, who's known ma- mainly for playing Hamed Al-Fayed in Tyrant, uh, which uh, I don't, I haven't seen that show, but uh, he had like quite a big role on it. I haven't seen it. Um, and he was also in three episodes of The Newsroom. Uh, and he actually like a couple, one, of, uh, one in The Rookie, and I absolutely do not remember it. I have to go and see uh, one in SWAT and one in Lucifer. Uh, and as you mentioned, Elliot Ness is played by Misha Collins, aka Castiel in Supernatural. Um, uh, I think he's on a podcast called Bridgewater, and he was on Gotham Nights too. I, I don't know. I I haven't seen those. I haven't listened to the podcast. Pre supernatural, he was most he had like mostly one off CSI New York without a trace monkey. He was in three episodes of ER, and I went back to see, and I already forgot because I'm like when I when I went back to see who he was, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right, and I already forgot what this. So yeah, uh, he also had like a few movies um, under his belt, like Over a Dead Body and Encounter, and uh, I get over it later, but I think uh, there was like a, a quite a bit of the supernatural fandom that kind of went and watched that episode because it was kind of like a mini reunion between um, Jim Beaver and Misha Collins. And uh, I think some of them were a little bit pissed off because <laughs> Misha is in like five minutes of the episodes. And yeah, he just gets I was surprised. Like right away. Yeah, I wonder if they were filming like near the same lot or something and were like, hey, you do this or something or he only had like a day to film oh maybe i don't know i don't know because uh, it's true supernatural filmed in british columbia too right i think so i think let me let me do that quickly so that was 20 2016 2017 um there's the episode uh, episode obviously the wiki the wikipedia article is filmed in british columbia canada for the most yeah i think i think so i'm just making sure like season that was season 12 new minster Uh, new westminster 
yeah somewhere yeah Yeah, somewhere like that um so yeah you're right they were probably filming like close by there was like a a little break exactly so i just had a little bit of time and kripke went hey you want to come on to the other set see what happens You mean Timeless? Yeah, Timeless was in like in British Columbia at this point too. So yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, so I guess you can. Uh, I'm done for the guest stars for now. At least there's a couple other, but later. Okay. So getting under our history minute, we put it a little later since it made a little more sense to wait until we saw Capone. So they had a lot of forward action in this episode that wasn't necessarily in the history part but uh so al capone was born in 1899 in brooklyn as alphonse capone and he dropped out of school after sixth grade and began running with a street gang known as the five points which was ran by johnny torrio there he ran with other notable mobsters such as lucky luciano and he also got an injury at this point in time sometime uh, when he was running with them during a they the one i saw was it was a fight at a brothel and that's what caused the scars on his face. And he also earned the nickname Scarface because of that, uh, which I didn't see it in any of the articles, but I had heard before he didn't like the nickname. Um, but Torrio moved to Chicago around 1909 to work for Big Jim Colosimo. And they he called Capone to join him in 1920. Shortly after Capone's arrival, Colosimo was brutally assassinated and Torrio took over his command of operations. And it was thought Torrio and likely Capone were responsible for that assassination. The Colosimo mob, which became known as the Outfit under Torrio, alongside their illegal op- operations, had also cultivated legitimate businesses and started to influence politics. Um, they had basically kind of made themselves like look good in public view um, mm. and were also influencing higher level politicians at this point. And after Colosimo's death, they began involving themselves in bootlegging, uh, which was a big opportunity during the Prohibition era. By 1925, Cabone had gained a fearsome reputation as Trio's right-hand man. And after Trio was injured during an assassination attempt and jailed uh, for bootlegging, Capone took over. Tensions between rival gangs all fighting for racketeering rights in Chicago grew intensely over the coming years, and the neighborhood of Cicero became the territory of Capone and his outfit. On February 14, 1929, while Capone was at his vacation home in Miami, seven members of Bugs Moran's mob were lined up against a garage and executed by machine gun fire, and it was thought Capone probably called for this killing even though he wasn't in the city at the time. Federal agents became involved with Capone after he refused to appear before a federal grand jury. His lawyer tried to claim he was ill and could not leave his vacation home in Miami, but investigators found that he had actually been to local racetracks and planned trips to Bimini and Nassau. So he was eventually called back to Chicago in late March and testified before that grand jury. Uh, But on his way out of the court, he was arrested for contempt. Uh, He made bail but was then arrested in Philadelphia a few months later with his bodyguard for illegally carrying a firearm. He was sentenced to a year in prison and served his sentence in Eastern State Penitentiary, where his cell was lavishly furnished, and he was given many luxuries. Um, I'm pretty sure if you go to Eastern State today, they still have his cell like marked, if I remember right. Um, I mean, it's helpful to have um, 
people in your pockets for that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, he served nine months for good behavior, and then he was held on those charges of contempt and sentenced to six months in Cook County Jail. While this was happening, a case was being gathered against him by the U.S. Treasury Department. With his lavish lifestyle, it was obvious that his on-paper businesses and the amount of money <laughs> he was spending did not add up. Uh, they didn't need to actually prove he was involved in illegal businesses. He just wasn't paying taxes on those businesses, and that's how they got him. Um, so he pled guilty at first and bragged that he had struck a deal for two and a half years sentence, but the judge quickly said, I'm bound by no such deal. And so Capone <laughs> retracted that plea and Whoops. said he was not guilty. Yeah. Um, on October 18th, 1931, he was found guilty of tax evasion and later sentenced to 11 years in prison, fined $50,000, held to over $7,000 in court costs, and he owed $215,000 plus interest in back taxes. Moral, which I don't more, know how much 1931 more, money that is, but that's a lot. Moral of the stories, file your taxes, pay your taxes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he was held first at Cook County uh, while they were doing the appeals. After appeals were exhausted, he was moved to Atlanta and then Alcatraz. After serving seven and a half years of his sentence, he was released. But at that point, his syphilis had progressed to paresis, uh, which is like, I think, a nerve damage caused by syphilis um following brain treatment in baltimore he lived the rest of his life at his vacation home in florida near miami in 1946 his his physician determined his mental incapacity due to his progressive syphilis had placed him at the decision-making capabilities of about a 12 year old and he passed the following year from stroke and pneumonia so he was relatively young still i believe when he passed because he was he was pretty young 40s, 50s, he was still in his 20s. Like yeah. Yeah. He was still young when he was basically yeah, the, controlling. Yeah. The height Chicago. of his, yeah. The height of his yeah. uh, career, uh, sort yeah. of. He, yeah, was, he, he was, was in pretty his young. 30s. Yeah. yeah. Now that's what, that's why, uh, that's what Lucy says. Yeah. She, she says at some point in this episode, he was 26 when he became basically in charge of the mm-hmm. outfit. Um, and then we also have Elliot Ness, which the majority of his, like, career accolades happened after chicago so uh this is that was interesting but um he was born in chicago to norwegian norwegian immigrant parents in 1902 he took school very seriously and often dressed nicer than other children at school which is why they gave him the nickname the elegant mess um i'm assuming because it rhymed with ness yeah probably but uh he graduated from finger high school in chicago south side and then worked for the Pullman factory for a few years before attending the University of Chicago. There he earned a degree in political science, commerce, and business administration. It was in the top 10% of his class. After graduation, he worked as an investigator for a credit company and then did some postgraduate work. His brother-in-law got him a job working as an agent for the U.S. Treasury, and he was later moved to the Justice Department's Prohibition Bureau. His brother-in-law actually eventually became the head of Chicago's Department of the FBI. He was assigned to shut down Al Capone's bootlegging operation and gathered a team of 10 men to help. These men became known as the untouchables because they wouldn't take a bribe. So that's when why it says we're the untouchables now. That's what he's talking about. Yeah. In 1933, prohibition was repealed and Ness was transferred to Cincinnati and then Cleveland. In 1935, Ness became the youngest safety director in the city of Cleveland and immediately began making big inroads into crime in the city. He went on a fact-finding mission 
within the fire and police departments that resulted in two police captains and other officers being found guilty of bribery and graft, and a slew of resignations landed on his desk after that. Um, he quickly replaced all of those with uh, people he deemed more qualified. Uh, he enacted other reforms that decreased crime and increased traffic safety as well. Within the first year and a half, he cut traffic deaths in half, reduced crime by 25%, implemented Boy Scout programs that led to an 80% decrease in juvenile crimes. He also made it harder to become a police officer with a revised test, fingerprinting, um, background checks, and a two-year probationary period for all new officers. He also used new technology to increase the speed of communication for police officers, and he founded the Cleveland Boys Town and a welfare department for families of police officers in need. Yeah, that's some in, impressive uh, credits yeah. there. Yeah, so basically, like, since he's dead, and they go if they go to Cleveland at any point after the 1930s, it's, yeah. it's not going to be as, uh, it'll be interesting, I guess. But, yeah, um, that's a big that's a big difference yeah. to history at least at least that local history but the ramification would be big I feel like yeah really he was nationally known yeah so in the 1940s the mayor who appointed Ness won his campaign for the U.S. Senate and Ness lost an ally with the mayor um, he later became a U.S. Supreme Court judge I believe um, his last name was Burton the same year, there was a peacetime draft and a large-scale military mobilization. This is the start of World War II for the U.S. Uh, Ness was recruited by the U.S. government to speak to new service members about the dangers of venereal disease, and this earned him criticism for being away from Cleveland so often. He stepped down as safety director in 1942 and became the national director for the Federal Social Protection Program. I After like the, the fact war, that he spoke about the dangers of venereal disease, and like and Capone what, died of yeah, the yeah. yeah. Um I I mean obviously I feel like that's something people were already aware of, but I wouldn't say like sex education was probably very high at that point. It was very terrible, like the, sure to speak yeah, thirties, forties, yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. And so after the war, he was chairman of the board for Diebold Safe and Lock Company in Canton, Ohio and formed a import-export business with a friend of his. He married for the third time in 1946, and he and his new wife, Elizabeth, adopted a three-year-old uh, orphan named Robert. In the late 40s, he had a failed campaign for mayor of Cleveland. By that point in time, he'd lost a lot of the allies he had in politics already, and I guess they'd forgotten all the good things he'd done for the city. Um, then in 1955, he was involved in a company that quickly failed um he also signed away the rights to autobiographical stories he gave to a sports writer named oscar fraley about defeating the bootleggers in the 20s and 30s not believing that it would be a successful book he died in 1957 of a heart attack at his home um and also fun fact he was the inspiration for the cartoon character dick tracy oh did not know that yeah. yep uh, and then lastly, Richard Hart, I didn't find too much on him that wasn't timeless related. Um, and so I did find, though, a newspaper article from like the 50s. And this was some information I found that I thought was just interesting. But Richard Hart or James Capone was discovered later in life to be the brother of Al Capone. At the age of 16, he ran away from Brooklyn to join the circus. 
And for many years, he was known as Richard Two Guns Hart, which I thought was interesting because he pulls two guns later in the episode. Um, He was a marshal in Homer, Nebraska, and an Indian agent in Winnebago, Nebraska. He was known for his propensity of catching bootleggers. His average was one a night, and at the height of the Prohibition era, he led seven raids in one night. Um, He was known to be very courageous and an expert marksman. His identity came to light during the tax evasion case of his brother, Ralphie Bottles Capone, which Al Capone mentions him at one point during the episode, mm-hmm. um, because he held the title to Ralphie's home in Wisconsin. The story came out that Hart had written to his family in 1937 when he had become, uh, as he put it, dead broke, nearly blind, and had a family of five to support. He was put on the Capone's payroll and given a title to the home. So that's how he ended up with that. It didn't give me much more information past that, though. That was Richard Hart. And I mean, yeah, they, look they really the changed the timeline this episode, if you think about it. Yeah, a lot. Quite a bit. Because, so, like, obviously, Ness dies. Capone dies when he shouldn't die for another, what, like 20, 30 years? Mm-hmm. Um, and then. But she didn't do much. Capone didn't do much after. No, that's jailed. true. That's true. So. Once he is in jail in 1931, um, people who are present in Chicago take over more things. But, um, I mean, it still would have been. But then, like, yeah, Hart probably gets. It's like they probably. Would they know that he's the one? Would they say that he's the one who shot Capone? I'm sure it comes out because, like, the people, I mean, like, yeah, if the you look, history if probably you look ends at, up being like a, in a dispute with his brother. Yeah, something like that. But like also, whoever's left behind to take over the the gang is probably like that guy needs to die. Yeah, true. So he probably has to go into hiding, either abandon or take his family into hiding or something like that. Yeah. Big. Which I mean, the only person who saw him and knew who he was. Oh, he's Lindsay. dead too, actually. Yeah, he's dead too. So really, he could just say he was Richard Hart, leave it at that, and and then just change change his identity. Yep. And like they didn't see anybody else in the building too. So, well, it's pretty late. There might not have been any anybody else in the in the building too. So maybe, maybe he was shot, and nobody knows who did it. Al Capone yeah. was found gunned down with his like right hand man uh, by his side and no one know what happened. no one knows what happened. Yep. That hmm. could be it. Imagine it turned it's it's become uh one of history's like critical mystery. It could be a, one of the big mysteries. I did this was something I came across in Ness's um uh, information was that he had claimed that he knew who the Kingsbury Run killer was, which was a famous serial killer in Chicago or not Chicago in Cleveland. Um, but he never revealed who it was, and to this day, it's like nobody knows who did that. It's one of I those. That was interesting. So uh, in in this timeline, David Hoffman doesn't have a podcast that says who killed JFK. It's who killed Al Capone. There you go. Uh, but yeah, uh, again. Go back into the episode. 
uh, Wyatt introduces uh, all of them as uh, private investigators, Connery, Costner, and Robert De Niro, which is a reference to the 1987 movies, The Untouchable. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lucy kind of tries to gauge what he knows about Flynn, but Ness is uh, really taken aback by their fashion choices, especially Rufus's, who's apparently wearing a woman's sweater. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It didn't really look like a woman's sweater to me, but okay. Uh, I feel like uh, like the waistcoats and suits were pretty much in in the yeah at that point in time. So, uh-huh. but I I love that it's a recurring bit this episode. Yeah. Um. So Lucy tells uh, Elliot that they were hired by Hearst to stop Flynn. It's not the first time we heard about Hearst by Hearst, by the way. Yeah. Um. Because um, what was her name in the pilot? I forgot her name. Kate. Kate, yeah. Drummond. Yes, she she worked for Hearst uh, newspaper. Yeah. I forgot which one, but yeah. Um, But yeah, they say they're from California. That probably explains their fashion choices, because I guess California is always a few steps ahead, I think. Probably, yeah. Um, I mean, kind of depends how you see fashion, but. Yeah, anyway, the coast the in America at least the coast usually seem to have different like a very specific fashion, fashion. Yeah. yeah or yeah or like a specific fashion to them yeah um so we go back to Mason Industries for a little bit and Gia is pacing the room she's kept in she's trying to get someone's attention like screaming she needs to go to use the bathroom and Mason and Neville 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 uh come in to interrogate her. Uh and Gia just basically just tells Mason off. Like she, uh and she's uh they have a little bit of a face off. And uh Heather, how much do you hate Mason right now? So much. I hope he has a really bad day for the rest of the series. Yeah, now like that he called her, he calls her childish, and I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, who's having, childish, I know, sure. who's, who's having a temper tantrum, who's been having temper tantrums, like, on episode basis, every time they're not included in the conversation, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, yeah, I, like, yeah, I, I love the, um, the parallel she makes between Mason and, and uh, the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, pull back the curtain. Yes. That was a good one. That was a, a really good parallel. She's just amazing this episode. Like it was a good episode for him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so basically they're trying to get her to talk. And like it's ridiculous because like she can talk all she wants. She knows nothing about what's been happening. So yeah, it's not like she's got any information they're in, anyway. They're offering her no like incentive to talk well, to them. They're being kind of awful. So other other than the fact that she'd be basically put in jail or I'm guessing more like a yeah, black but, site or something like that. But have they given her any indication that if she talked, they wouldn't do that? Yeah, exactly. So there's so, no point in talking if they're still going to put her in jail. Exactly. Or make her like do the pilot stuff still if they build another time machine. Yeah, and and again, even if she wanted to talk, she knows nothing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so we we cut back to uh Ness's place, 
And he's preparing food for everyone, which I thought was very cute. He's just making dinner for everybody. Um, yeah. It's nice. Um, and I like, like, Ness is very much a uh, Wyatt Logan. Like, he's very loyal, uh, very much, like, search for justice. He's protective of his wife. Like, he refuses to give up. Like, it's it's very, yeah, like, there's some good parallel with uh, with Wyatt, I think. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, before they can figure out much of anything, someone knocks at the door and uh, just sh shoots through the door once Ness gets close. Um, yeah, I feel like he just went on, like, about how he had to leave his home because people figured out where he lived. I feel like I would answer the door a little more carefully. Yeah, well, he thought it was someone else, but yeah, I, I mean, he does look in the, what do you call it, the people? Uh, there wasn't much else he could do, but yeah. To be fair, even if there was some kind of, you know, like, secret knock or like password he would have like there would probably be in the history book somewhere and Flynn would have known and would have told the guy okay. anyway so yeah I don't think it would have made much of a difference at this point um but yeah Wyatt manages to kill the shooter but Ness is dead and it's like the shortest cameo yes, ever <laughs> I went damn that's fast yeah um but yeah, if if I'd been a supernatural fan, I probably would have been mad. <laughs> yeah, I do like during this scene before he gets shot. Um, Rufus is talking about like how he deals with people he loves being in the crosshairs and all the danger, because I feel like it brings us back to the fact that Rufus is really the only one that has living people in danger. Mm -hmm. Like Amy's gone, you know, uh, Jessica's still dead. But Rufus has like Gia and his family to to worry about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like that. You know, they kind of take cover behind a table. I have no idea if Formica table stops bullets, but okay, I'll take. You know, <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah. This way, they're not hurt, at least for now. Um, they don't get shot now, so that. Rufus can get shot better later. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's rough. Um, they have no doubt that Flynn behind it. Like Wyatt uh, tells them that they have to because Flynn's behind them. And there's, okay, uh, credit to Logan here. She's the one who made me look at this. Because Wyatt says, like, I'm wearing button, button fly jeans from The Gap. And Lucy uh, looks down. Yep. <laughs> I noticed that. Point look. <laughs> yeah. It, like, it's not even subtle. I don't know how I missed it before because it's not even subtle. Uh, yeah, she's just, just taking a look. Checking the goods. Uh, anyway, moving on. Uh, uh, okay. There's an interesting part here because they break into a car. And mm -hmm. again, there's, we've seen that before, there's a focus on the hood ornament, which yeah. is a leaping jaguar. So this is a jaguar. However, in 1931, the jaguar wasn't even jaguar yet. Uh, here's the excerpt from uh, the Wikipedia page on it. So the Swallow Sidecar Company was founded in 1922 by two motorcycle enthusiasts, William Lyons and William Walmsley. In 1934, Walmsley elected to sell out 
and in order to buy the swallow business, uh, Lions form SS Cars, finding new capital, buying strange shares to the public. Jaguar first appeared in September 1935 as a model name. So in 1931, there was no Jaguar, let alone the hood ornament that was not introduced until 1945. So um, little anachronism here. <laughs> Someone yeah, didn't do their do homework. Well, I'm sure it was like, who has a, a car that looks like it's from the 1930s we can borrow? But um, but it's surprising that they they put the focus on on the hood ornament. Yeah, I think they were just like looking over the. That's probably just the angle they could get best. Maybe. Well, someone get fired for that blunder? Who knows? Um, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and again, like so, once they're in the car, uh, both Lucy and Rufus are kind of freaking out, which. You know, just been shot at, seen a man die that shouldn't have died. Uh, Lucy probably knows exactly the repercussion of that death because, like you said, he did a whole lot of stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. But then, again, Wyatt keeps his calm. Uh, he keeps saying one problem at a time. And Lucy's so frustrated. I'm like, why do you keep saying that? Why do you keep saying that? And so he, uh, he tells uh, that story about... Uh, the first Delta mission where Diamond Dave, his commander. Yes, his commander. Just uh when the el the helicopter he was in. Uh yeah, he was in an airplane. A helicopter hit the airplane. Yes, uh, that, that was it. Because of high winds. And so uh Diamond Dave woke up with the plane on fire and jumped out of it with no parachute. And people were like, Well, if you thought you were still flying, why'd you jump? And he said one problem at a time. Yeah, I'm not so. quite sure what to think about it because, I mean, yeah, I guess I guess it works because it turned out well. I wonder what would have happened if he actually was in the air. Like, what was he going to do anyway? But, like he said, one problem yeah. at a time. Yeah, it's not it's not a bad um, you know, it's not a bad solution. If you're in a situation like that, yeah, probably not. Yeah, I mean, he, he did. Basically he did. have to focus on what's yeah. going on, and then exactly. So out he, the rest of it, later. and it's not like it's not like his first reflex was to jump out. Like Wyatt still mentions, he looked out for a parachute, and there was none. Mm -hmm. So he had no choice. So I guess, yeah. <laughs> um, but so Lucy kind of uh gathers her wits, and she goes, "I know who to go for." And then um, they drive to Nebraska. And then they, they drive to Nebraska. <laughs> Which, That's like, I didn't do the math on how long it would have taken in a 1930s car, but probably longer than they did. <laughs> yeah. Because it looked like they went um, more like to the suburbs, but this is the suburbs yeah. of Homer, Nebraska. Uh, and so Lucy's knocking at someone's door, and it's uh, Richard Hart. AKA uh, Al Capone's brother. Yeah. And uh, Richard Hart is it, played by uh, Mater, Mather, Zickle. I don't know how to say his name and I didn't look it up. I'm oh, sorry. Mather. Mather. Yeah. I... Is it M A T H E R? Yes. Mather. Mather. I, okay. I've never encountered that name before. There was a. Uh... Oh, what's his. What was it exactly? I think he was a preacher in like like pilgrim era and he wrote some books on like witches and stuff cotton mather 
he wasn't a good guy. Yeah, I don't. Uh, he 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 wasn't like he doesn't have a whole lot of credits. Uh, I knew I recognized him, and he had like a small guest in Veronica Marks, and that's where I remember him from. Um, he did a bunch of stuff like Reno nine one one. Uh, Rachel getting married. I think he was actually he had like quite a, a more important role in Rachel getting married. Um, he had like a guest star in Bones, Blue Bloods, Modern Family, and you know the obligatory SVU episode. We need to have some people on Law and Order here. It's been it's been a been a commonality here. Um, but yeah, he denies at first. He tries to pretend. I have no idea what you're talking about. I am. I know nothing. Hal Capone, who um. But eventually he admits it. Um, and so they they ask for his help to go after his brother. He's not super happy about it. Uh, like Nobody knows who he is, not even his family. And he's really not... Uh, he really doesn't want to at first. Yeah, and then, but also, like, it's at the same time that Al's his little brother. Like, yeah. It's not just the fact that he doesn't want to because he's stayed hidden so long. It's also the fact that it's his little brother and he doesn't want to arrest him. Yeah. Like he Which says, is, like, I, I wiped his damn nose. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point because, like, Lucy, you know, at this point, she just wants Amy back and would do basically anything for Amy. So I think it's a little unfair of her specifically to be asking him to arrest his brother. Yeah, but on the but, other hand, uh, Amy Amy's hasn't a killed a bunch of people. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh but yeah that's where she says like there's nobody else but you uh <clears throat> hello uh aren't you using wyatt's word here yeah i love when they do that they've done it before where wyatt mm -hmm. uses lucy's Lucy words either. yeah uh, or something yeah when they do that um we switch to capone's office uh the mayor comes in having been summoned uh, in a very delicate way by a goon who's dragging yeah. him into the office. Uh, and that's the favor he owes Flynn. Uh, Flynn wants to talk, air quote, with him. Uh, dude's about to have a not Bad. good evening at all. Yep. Um, last, uh, this is the last guest star. I wasn't even going to get into him at first. But then I saw, uh, so Mayor Thompson is played by Richard uh now who's got a whooping 200 credits to his name so i figured i'd mention him uh he's 76 and still active uh his first role was in 1980 so he's yeah he's been active for like over wait yeah over 40 years sorry i had to do some math for a second <laughs> um uh he's been in like good morning vietnam kindergarten cop sister act um and that's where the most impressive thing is he's got a lot of tv show credits home free the sopranos uh a show called easy streets and then like he had a lot of one or two offs like the equizer boys meet world seinfeld Mur murder she wrote the she'll need to make like pucks and Rex, and not a single law and order in order <laughs> not a one <laughs> I thought that was pretty impressive in itself. That's pretty uh, impressive. Yeah. 200 credits, not a single law and order. Guess Dick Wolf doesn't like the guy. Uh, or he avoided him. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, 
Sorry. He might have missed the, he might have like missed like the air. I don't know. No, he's still working during that time. So he's still working. Like he's worked pretty much constantly since 1980. Mm-hmm. So, and I feel like he I want to see CSI though. If you don't get caught by one, you do get caught by the other. He was on an episode of CSI New York. Yes. But like, how many have we seen? Like, Law and Order has been our, like, throughout, um, how do you call that? The, like, the common mm, thread? Yeah, the common thread of, like, the main guest stars. They've all been on some type of Law and Order, even the most more obscure ones. Um, people are going to start to think I have a like a bone to pick with low and order and no not at all i just i don't really watch it but like they're they're good shows they're just not my my thing but uh just keep seeing it popping uh anyway uh at heart house so um oh that's where lucy appeals to his good heart and his compassion and says there's uh nobody but you so that's where they finally um managed to convince him to go after his brother which like good luck my dude uh back to capone's office where we're seeing flynn deep in conversation with the mayor um aka keeps hitting him uh and so he wants to know about a meeting the famous uh, charvet we saw him uh have another conversation with uh, last episode um and the mayor told him uh so it's a um, a big meeting with all the Rittenhouse people that happens every 25 years. Uh, and um, the mayor told the mayor tells him it happened two years ago. And the next one isn't until 1954, which caught, which really uh, picks Flynn's interest. What's the expression? I forgot. Picks his interest. Picks yeah. his interest. Um, and they're like, well, you're going to wait all that time. Uh, it's closer than you think. That's what he Flynn says, I think. Yeah. You know. He does make a, a joke too when he says like uh uh oh Charvet died like uh I don't know how many years ago. It's like, oh, seems like yesterday. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I think it's funny when they make those little quips about time traveling. Uh but yeah, now that Flynn has what he wants, uh he's about to shoot him dead. But, you know, Capone just does not want to have to clean up a mess and blood off of his carpet. So he just asks his um, Frank or another one of his goons to just uh, take him by the docks. Yeah. Which uh, somebody's going to end up with some uh, concrete shoes. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, between um, the tax case and Elliot Ness, Capone is still a favor short. and Not to worry, though, because... Flynn has an idea. <clears throat> Not good. No, Flynn's ideas are rarely, rarely work out for us. But um, we go back to the time team and they're in Hart, and they're just arriving at Capone's building. And like, I like really. Maybe that's why they showed a jaguar because you need a jaguar to go that fast from Nebraska. Um, maybe. Yeah. Uh, as usual, they're super discreet about time travel because Lucy makes a comment about how uh, that building was the height of luxury at the time and hard is like, what time? Yeah. It's also, uh, the inside is really pretty. Um, yeah. I don't know if that is the actual building. 
that they're using. Yeah, that's a really actually. gorgeous building. Um, yeah, I didn't think to look at to look at that. We should ask our uh, people on the ground in Chicago to ask if it's an actual building. I don't know if it's still there or not. Um, but yeah, they managed to talk their way into Capone's office by like hard, like uh, Frankie that he recognizes. No, not Frankie. Which one? Um, it's Frankie. Frankie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so Richard kind of outs himself as Jimmy Capone, and uh, that's when. Rufus is super stoked that they're totally the untouchables right now. Uh, yeah, he, it, it won't last. It's not mm-hmm. going to be happy for super. No, oh, I was looking at the Lexington Hotel in Chicago and they have a picture of people playing golf and it looks like the lobby, which isn't he playing golf in his little room, whatever. Uh, in his office. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Office. yeah. Interesting. Uh, the Lexington Hotel is no longer in operation. But does the building still exist? Yeah, but I think it's abandoned. Oh. If it's still there. Oh, well, um, that sucks. There's pictures of it that look very abandoned. Ah. Uh, oh, well. But those old buildings are really expensive to keep up at some point. Um, So I could see that probably be part of the problem. Yeah. But anyway, so back to Mason Industries. Gia is not just sitting quietly in her cell of a room. Uh, she rummages through the closets and manages to build a little mini computer. And she types away. Mason is in the main computer area, uh, restoring access to the lifeboat. And he thinks that he, you know, has had this big success and they can figure out where they are. But then right before that happens, Gia cuts the power and Mason is pissed. But yeah, and at, so. yeah. at this point, I'm like, I pause to like look at her code. And I don't know why, because I don't understand code. And I spent a I solid like 30 seconds looking. And I'm like, why am I even looking? <laughs> I have no clue. There was one point where they zoom in and it's obvious like she had targeted Mason. Specifically yeah, she's his, like, in, she's in the Mason yeah. like frame or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um. But yeah, but yeah, so the time team, meanwhile, I love, I love, like when they go into the room and she's just sitting, all innocently on the there, table. Yeah. Like, I still got to pee. <laughs> yeah, she's like, I, don't, I wonder if she like broke down the computer while they were coming to her. But uh, um, I forgot to look in the background, but I feel I like she probably didn't even bother. She was like, Meh. they knew, yeah, they knew it was her. Uh, the time team and Hart though are in Al's office at the same time, and the two like kind of bust each other, bust each other's chops for a minute. And then they kind of hug and Richard tells Capone that he is a cop and they kind of share a drink. You would expect him at that point to like throw him out. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, uh, okay, finish out. We'll talk after. Oh, the team starts asking about Flynn here. And that's where it's revealed that Flynn uh, got that information that something's happening in DC in 1954. I love if you look at the, the time team in the back, like when, well, like Richard and Al are talking um because like when he asks his brother about his cars you can see like lucy's here like she perks up she's really interested in the real story like oh what happened uh mm-hmm. she still has that thing like i want to learn everything that's happening yeah uh, well i think too like the way he's acting i bet there was a little bit of worry that he was not going to go through yeah. with it <laughs> like they keep they keep so. like glancing at each other so like yeah, is, is he gonna or is he yeah. gonna turn against us like what's gonna happen but you can see, like, the whole time, Wyatt is on high alert. Like, he's ready yeah. to get his gun. Like, 
he's especially like hyper aware of any of Frankie's movement. Every time Frankie moves, his hand like goes near to his gun. Yeah. Is like it's really tense. Yeah, this is where he also asks like where the time team's from because they don't look like they're from Chicago, which I thought was funny because Rufus was from Chicago and Lucy studied at Chicago. That's so. true. Yeah, everything seems to be leaning back there quite a bit. But um, he said they're from the lands of fruits and nuts, which was like <laughs> okay. <laughs> but that was what his uh dismissal was for I guess why they were dressed so weird. Yeah. But uh. Hart then tells his brother that he's here to arrest him and goes about as well as that. As he would yeah. Uh, he's not very happy about that at all. And that's when guns come out. Capone tells them that the last favor Flynn uh, wanted him to do was to kill Rufus. Uh, so he turns a gun on him. Um, Hart tries to get Capone to lower his gun, but that's not happening. Uh, things just get tenser and tenser. And then Capone, Capone is convinced that Richard won't shoot him. So he shoots Rufus. Uh, Wyatt pushes him out of the way, but he's still shot in the stomach. And Capone is wrong because Hart shoots him dead while Wyatt takes care of Frankie. So, And this is also where Hart pulls out two guns, which I mentioned his nickname was Hart Two Guns. Or Two Guns Hart. So, that's, a, yeah, um, that's a good... It's an, another uh, one of those like little details mm-hmm. that they didn't have to include because like most people wouldn't know about never it. Never know, yeah. yeah. And then at Mason Industries... Uh, Cahill goes into Mason's office and Mason tells him he's going to be to get back up and running soon and will be able to track down the lifeboat when they come back. Um, he also asks for as- access to the NSA data farm in Utah to develop software to be able to pinpoint anyone he could ever want, which is where I think kind of Mason's kind of working behind the scenes, even if he's being a total butthead about it. Um, obviously, there's like a double reason here why Mason wants it. Like the one he's saying is not exactly what is actually the reason he needs it. So uh, they're giving me blank faces at this point. <laughs> but it was very obvious. Uh, but then we cut back to Chicago, which things aren't going great there. Uh, Rufus asked them to take back, uh, t- take them back to the lifeboat uh, so he can take them home, which is solving one problem at a time. But by and the it, time they reach... He takes it so hard because like, he's the protector. So like, I should have reacted faster. I'm like, what were you going to do? Like... Yeah. There wasn't much he was going to be able to do. He did the best he could. Yeah. Um, but by the time they reach the lifeboat, Rufus is not looking good. Uh, and he manages to start the launch sequence, but then passes out uh, right as the lifeboat kind of kicks on. So, yeah, And just before bad. he passes out, he's going to tell Gia and it yeah, stops and you. I'm like, ah! Yeah, that? that's where we leave it. Like, yeah, right, right. Where right it should be for before the finale. That's... Yeah, uh, basically, you want to be in the worst position possible going into your finale. I think that's that's about right. Um, which I think was let me check quickly, but I'm pretty sure there was just a one week wait. Yeah. <laughs> well, even then, uh, yeah, just one week, but still, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. Overall, I mean, that episode. It's not. It's not my favorite. It's not. It's not a bad episode by any means, but uh or talking about it before recording and yeah it's it's very much there it's just the episode that places them where yeah exactly places them where they need to be before the finale so yeah i feel like it moves very like we do this then we do this then we do this then we do this 
And so one thing at a time. Yeah, um, that was very much that. <laughs> yeah. And so like, but yeah, it's all to get them in that position for the finale. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty much as much of a filler as we get. Like it's, yeah, we do get like a bit more of like the story moves yeah, forward a little bit a filler because i mean stuff still happens but yeah it's it's more of a filler than the others of like most of the others have been let's put it that way yeah um yeah but but yeah no like theory wise obviously mason's into something um so what do you what do you think is gonna happen in the finale really in the finale well they're going to dc in 1954 so that's the red scare which is the name of the show uh the episode so mccarthyism in the 50s um i'm assuming they're gonna get arrested as commies (laughs) (laughs) or something to that effect um i don't know though honestly like i feel like there's not a lot of clues leading into it of what could happen um Gia is captured by Rittenhouse, so that could go continuously bad. Uh, I don't think Rufus dies, but I would assume they're on some kind of run for the for the remainder of the series. I don't know. <laughs> like, I feel like it'd be hard to come back from that if they don't find a way to get Rittenhouse out of the NSA. So there's that. Yeah, I guess and that's we'll a lot see. to do in one episode. But I guess yeah, there's like there, I can't tell you that the finale is there's a lot of stuff that happens. Yeah, so I'll watch yeah. it right after this. So. Yes, please. So that's about it for the episode. And uh, now Manny and I had the great opportunity to speak with David Hoffman, a writer and historical historical consultant for the Timeless. Uh, and so here's the interview. Um, so today we're talking with Mr. David Hoffman, who was uh, both a writer and historical consultant on the show Timeless. Uh, Mr. Hoffman, thanks for being here. My, first of all, please call me David. Okay. Uh, David, thank, thank you for being here and talking with us. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for being such big fans of the show and, and keeping... Um, keeping interest in it alive. It's great to see people still discovering it and rewatching it and everything like that. So it's fantastic. Yeah. We, we just, uh, we just re- recorded a little um, sum up of timeless day just this morning. Yeah, that, yeah, was, that, was that was really fun. Yeah. That was really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to jump uh, into the interview, um, we were wondering, can you tell us a bit more about your background and how you came into uh, writing for television? Yeah, so I wrote a lot growing up, like uh, high school and things like that. And it was a great kind of creative outlet for me. Um, I went to college. I was a history major and wrote in college. But then um, after I I was on the East Coast and it didn't seem like writing was a realistic career for me at the time. So I got a job um, in New York where I was from and working on Wall Street and finance, which I did for um, almost 15 years in total. And, And there were times during that career like I was at Lehman Brothers right before the crash and some other things where I was just really starved for a creative outlet and so I started writing um just for myself just I had a long commute and I needed some something to kind of express myself and I started writing and my wife at the time had just gotten a job at AMC as they were coming out with Breaking Bad and Mad Men so she was bringing home these ridiculously fantastic scripts and that's when I decided well if I'm going to write 
why don't I try kind of this format instead of a book? And I found that that um, writing for the screen really kind of was fun and suited me. And um, I never I dreamed that it would be a career or anything, live in New York and all that. But I, I would write something and then I would kind of submit it to contests using a pen name, a totally fake name, because my company would have been furious if they knew that I was devoting so much kind of of my <laughs> time and energy toward writing. Yeah. Um, but long story short, eventually one of the scripts I submitted into a contest um, found its way to some managers and an agent. And then my wife got a job opportunity out in Los Angeles kind of at the same time. So we decided to move out here. Um, and I was still writing. I was still working in finance, I should say, um, when eventually, um, you know, another script really started to get me some attention and I started to get meetings. And it was just kind of fingers crossed, waiting to see if that would turn into a full time career for me or not. And fortunately, it did through Timeless. So Timeless really was your first big project. It was. It was my first it was my first professional job. I, I had. You know, I'd, I'd started to do well in things like the Austin Film Festival and the Nickel, like other other writing contests that kind of, um, especially for kind of people trying to break in, one gets their foot in the door, but also kind of, for me, it was just some validation of, okay, you might not be awful at this, so keep doing it. Um, but yeah, then Timeless was really my first opportunity and, and it was crazy. Um, I had heard about the show because I was following all the reports of it and it being a history show piqued my attention. Um, and I got a call from my agents that they were looking for someone to be kind of a historian slash writer in the room. Would I be interested? And so I flipped out and I was, and I got to watch the pilot, which was super cool. Um, I, at Eric Kripke's office, one of the showrunners, I met Eric, I met his, um, associate producer, who's now a big producer on the boys and other stuff he does, Michaela Starr. And, um, you know, kind of went from there where, um, I spoke with Sean's people and then I got an offer to join as kind of a historian, um, slash writer. Um, and I had, it was a Friday of Memorial day weekend and I had to let them know when the room was opening Tuesday. So I had like three days to decide that, okay. um, kind of life-changing decision, which, which I was very fortunate. My family and wife and everything else were supportive. And, um, you know, I took the leap. Wow. That's, uh, it's exciting. <laughs> um, yeah. so when you came, you came in, the show had already started. So the way it works is, um, creators, show writers will write a, a show and there's a huge long process of people, um, you know, at all the different networks back then and now networks and streamers and other places deciding which ones they want to kind of develop. And then from there, they choose which ones they might want to film a pilot for, um, which is filming the first episode. And then from there, they decide which pilots they want to put on the air. So the time timeless folks, especially with Sean Ryan and Eric running it had had two you know, super well-known and incredibly well-respected and awesome showrunners at the, at the helm. So it was always one that people thought had a good chance to get made. Then the pilot was awesome. So when I stepped in, the pilot was made and they had a green light from NBC to make, I forget how many, 13 more episodes or something like that. And that's when they were kind of putting the writer's room together. And I think I was probably the last person kind of hired to join that room. So at that point, they had one episode filmed and Eric and Sean had kind of a pitch deck with some other ideas of episodes and stuff, but that was basically, um, and they had their own ideas about the characters and the shows and everything like that for sure. Um, but in terms of the episodes that you guys all know, like those hadn't been really worked on yet. That's yeah, fair enough. That's but that. I mean, it's 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 an it's 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 a pretty cool story. Like um, you know, just to go from like 
finance to and then to um you know to follow what you really want to do and then to end up on a show like timeless that's really cool oh it was amazing um, for like one of my favorite shows growing up was um oh my god i can't even, I, this what a crazy sentence to then forget the name of the show um it's back on the air now with uh it was scott bacula where he jumps into oh, different quantum leap Thank you. Geez. Quantum leap. And, and, you know, I, this, to me, this felt quantum leapy, right. And I think Eric and Sean would say the yeah, same it thing. Is. That it is, certainly yeah. an element of that in there. Um, you know, my friends back in college and high school joke, I, I would miss classes to, to watch up reruns of that show. I just, I loved history. I loved thinking about changes of history and um, you know, a, a script I wrote that really helped break me in was um, a true story about JFK. And so that along with my history degree allowed me to kind of be pitched as a historian. And I just got very lucky that this show was looking for someone with my background at the same time I had a script kind of circulating that showed that I could add value in that way. And, you know, it was, it, it was just very good timing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that That's really cool. It's really cool. So moving kind of into the show itself. Um, so can you explain sort of, what the process of writing an episode for the show was like like wh where did you guys start did you guys start with um like the time period or the historical figure and then kind of work your way in around that or yeah, it, how did a, that quite it, it's a great question and, and you know one of the things i learned quickly you know when you're on a network show shows you know this was on nbc and there was very clear specific air dates for each episode which means there's yeah. a very tough schedule is that um, multiple episodes are being worked on at once. Um, and so you're kind of brainstorming one episode while you're get work as a group working on the finer points of another episode while one person is writing another episode as another episode is actually being filmed in Vancouver or wherever. So there's, there's a lot going on, which is really fun. And you're trying, you know, a showrunner's job and some of the other kind of co-EPs and EPs in the room is to make sure that everything's still lining up. And, you know, when you think of like Sean and Eric and, and showrunners in general, they're really CEOs of this company that are working on casting and costume and working yeah. with all these amazing professionals that are doing sets and everything else to making sure it all fits it's together. like a whole machine. It, it, like. it really is with a huge budget and NBC is, has given them this control. And, and that's why people like Sean and Eric have proven time and time again, they're so good at it that they know how to, you know, both be in the room and give all their ideas and creative um, thoughts and genius to the show, but also have the, the um, ability to run it like someone who can run a business, which, you know, managing that side too. But anyway, um, so, you know, it was great with, with this show and where my role really came in to answer your question about how the episodes were created was that there was a real sense starting with Sean and Eric and then, you know, kind of working the hierarchy down of, of what we wanted these, who these characters were and what they were going through and where one episode left off and what they had happened to them and where we thought kind of emotionally that left them for the next episode. And I, you know, I don't know if I can come up with an exact, an exact example, but if, if there was something going on with Lucy and Wyatt after episode X, we would know that the next episode we wanted to pick that up and kind of find something interesting to evolve that, dilemma or that romance or that conflict or whatever. And so part of my job would be kind of saying, all right, you know, looking out for a few episodes, these are the highs and lows that we think we want our main characters 
to go on um, and what characters or events in history might line up well to help yeah. tell that story. And so, you know, the, it, it would really start largely with where our characters were emotionally and seeing, seeing if we could find someone or something in history that would bring that to the forefront. Um, you know, and every now and then we would find something that was just so cool historically that we would say, all right, if not this episode, let's try it next episode. Or we would know that, um, you know, and I know Sean in an interview back in the day kind of highlighted um, we were looking at um, World War II and figuring out how we could tell a story like that in our budget and looking at something called Operation Paperclip, which is where um, the Americans and Russians were racing to kind of get Nazi scientists onto their side. Um, and we, I, I, I kind of stumbled upon the fact that the guy who wrote um, the James Bond novel, novels, Ian Fleming, was yes. in the midst of all that. And so we kind of said, yeah. well, this is a great way of telling a World War II story with Ian Fleming, a.k.a. James Bond. Um, and Jim Barnes, um, producer and writer on the show, who was a were, it was his episode to kind of write and and all that. It was just such a perfect fit to write yeah. that world and those characters. And I think to this day, it's probably, um, you know, fans of the show, it's probably one that rightfully so stands out. And it's just an oh, example of how these things come together to to form yeah the episode yeah it's it's definitely it's definitely up there like especially coming from the pilot and like the first two three episode i think this it's the first one where uh you always you already see like oh this is this is really fun this and, and that's really where we were i think i think probably too it's real you, I, you know we as a group i would say we're really starting to understand that process of do you lead with the historical figure do you lead with the historical time period like where do you where does that all come together you know i think our second episode was lincoln which was great and the um robert todd character uh, of lincoln's son was really when we were like oh our guest character really people really connected with him and that was a hit like guest characters yeah. here we can get some great actors and actresses and make that really fun um, in Vegas and Atomic City, I think that one was more at the time, probably more about we knew we wanted to be in Vegas in that time period. Mm -hmm. um, and we found some characters to to work in there and stuff. And, um, you know, we were still kind of finding our way a little bit in terms of there, there was just so much to work with. And it's kind of like, how do you decide? And that's what yeah. Sean and Eric and the other senior writers kind of on the, the team um, were just so good at. It was just kind of an, an embarrassment of riches in terms of people that had experience to know how to work through that and create what was created. Um, yeah, so getting to uh, the first episode that you actually uh, wrote, uh, or at least is credited as a writer, uh, The Lost Generation, uh, yep. what drew you to like this time period, the characters and like the story you told in, in this episode? Yeah, well, I was just thrilled. I didn't know going into the my hiring if I was going to be able if I was going to get to write an episode or not. Um, and and so when Sean and Eric told me that I was going to get to co-write an episode, I was just so thrilled. One, because I felt like it meant they thought I was doing a good job and had earned it. But two, it was just a huge, huge breakthrough for me personally. And I was so excited to write with Kent Rotterham, who's a great writer, and we have very similar sensibilities and stuff. So we kind of spent a while trying to think about different time periods that were exciting to us. And we would kind of pitch those to Sean and Eric and they would, and other people, and they would say no or no, or maybe. And I remember we both really liked um, the lost generation in Paris in that time period. And of course um, the Woody Allen film, midnight in Paris was 
you know, newer back then and, and it was a was and is um despite the Woody issues, a favorite film of mine. I just thought it was genius in the history and the characters and certainly an inspiration. So that, you know, we we kind of found a way to convince Eric and Sean that we thought it could be really compelling and that once we kind of, again, found the way to make it make sense with Lucy and the other characters and what they were going through and the, you know, a young Hemingway and um, Lindbergh going through that story there and how that could have a written house connection was really again that's when i think sean and eric and the others were kind of like oh now we see how this is a, a, a time period and show and, you know episode that makes sense for timeless and where we are in the show you know because sometimes it's like oh that's so cool i never knew that person did that i didn't know josephine baker was a spy but it doesn't mean it's right to tell for the show right now and i think with rittenhouse and lucy and what she was learning um the Lindbergh and what kind of Again, as the historian, I kind of made sure everyone knew who Lindbergh was as a real person, um, the good and the bad, kind of we saw how it could be a fun kind of way to play on some of what Lucy was going through. Yeah, yeah. that was that was really great. I think that's something that we keep on uh and emphasizing in in each episode of the pod is how well connected the history uh is with like the the actual history versus um the connection to uh timeless history yeah no and you know as a as a i mean i i i'm not a historian in the sense of and i told sean eric this when i was hired like i'm not a ucla professor i'm not i don't have a phd in history anything like that i'm just someone that loves history um but it was always important to me that as we were doing this to one be as honest as we could about who these people were the good and the bad mm -hmm. and i think eric and sean really I mean, so many things to their credit, but this to their credit, they really got excited about, you know, we can tell stories about people that history is overlooked or forgotten or um, be more honest about who some of these people were. And certainly, I think as you see the first season advance and then into the second season, you saw us get more and more into telling stories about people that maybe like, oh, I'd never heard of that person or I didn't realize they did that. And I think the whole cast, crew, writers, everyone kind of got excited about doing that. And, you know, I was always excited when someone would say to me like, oh, afterwards I would go to Wikipedia or buy a book on this person. I was so intrigued by them. And that's, that's kind of a cool thing. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, do you want to get the next? Yeah. Um, okay. So, I mean, I feel like you kind of answered this one, but so like it, but it seems um, like in the episode, there's, and kind of throughout this series, I think we kind of see this theme where when people are told about Rittenhouse, they, they're like horrified at what they find out. And then they end up coming back for some reason. Like we see that with, um, uh, sorry, we, yeah, we see that with John, Ritten, um, John Rittenhouse in um, the Benedict Arnold episode. Uh -huh. Cahill said that he did that. Charles Lindbergh and now sort of Lucy like was that an intentional choice on on your part uh, it's, it, you know intention I, you know I don't I don't know how to answer exactly because I don't know the word intentional is throwing me off a little bit it, it was a it was a choice that I would say the room and Sean and Eric who uh, you know were aware of and certainly I think you know going back to to the Lost Generation episode specifically I think one of the things that connected them to the idea was that this is when Lucy's kind of learning who she is and her bloodline, for lack of better 
you know, terminology and seeing someone like Lindbergh, she's like, she wants to believe she convinced him to change because she wants to believe that she's not destined to become preordained to become this Rittenhouse person that she doesn't want to be. And so I think some of it is, is that it's an interesting, she walks away thinking she convinced him, comes back home, realizes he still became the Rittenhouse um, person that she tried to talk him out of. And that sends kind of a shiver down her spine of, oh, you know, this might not be as easy to walk away from as I had hoped. And I hope that was something personal and specific to his character and not something that is going to happen to me too. And, and I think that, that, you know, those kinds of vibes were definitely intentional to make it seem like Rittenhouse, it wasn't going to be as easy for her to walk away as just saying, no, thank you. I don't want that. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was intentional to show that people throughout history and Rittenhouse's um, reign, um, it's not as simple as just saying, no, thank you, but they can get their claws into people in a variety of ways, which I think is true of, of different groups of power you know, in the world, right? There, there are people that might not want to be, a, might want to go one way, but realize that they, they're, there's a strong gravitational pull for one reason or another, pulling them in a direction they wouldn't have necessarily chosen. Um, no, that's definitely true. Um, and you know, so in uh, in this episode, we see uh, Dave Von Garner or Bam Bam coming Bam Bam. back very shortly uh, yeah. after we got a glimpse of it uh, back in the Alamo. Uh, was that always the plan to bring him back? Uh, oh, you know, again, like always is, is a strong word there. And I would say, no, it wasn't always the plan, but it was definitely as we were mapping out of the episodes before and after and looking at, you know, what Wyatt was getting into and how Wyatt wouldn't, there's no way we had a big discussion. Was there any way after what happened the episode before Wyatt could ever go on this mission and be like, no, like this just, there's no way, right? He, he, there has to be some accountability for what he did. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, all right, well, then there's still a mission and there's no way they wouldn't send a Marine, a protector of some sort, whatever, you know, who this person was. Yeah. And Dave had been introduced and and um, Victor, I think was the, the actor's name, was awesome and everyone liked him. And it was like, this is a perfect fit. Like he, it had to be someone also that you felt in the moment was believable as a Matt Lantern, you know, Wyatt replacement. Yeah. And, 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 Which he and, definitely is. Right, which Victor was fantastic and Dave, you know, Baumgartner like fit that bill where, you know, you see him and you're like, oh, this guy looks crazy legit too. Like maybe they don't need Wyatt anymore as much as they want. And obviously we showed why Wyatt is uniquely fit to to fill that role. Um, and, and hopefully that was a surprise to people when sadly Bam Bam met a, a, an early demise. Um, but it was meant to show too that, you know, this, the, the, the trio was meant meant to be working together and, and each of their, they fit together like a, like a puzzle in, in, in ways that couldn't be easily replaced. Yeah, no, he was definitely a, a beloved, uh, he's actually very, very loved for an, a character that appeared a total of maybe like 10 minutes. Oh, I love that. The I, show. I they, yeah. I hope the actor who portrayed him too know, knows that because he, he was an awesome guy. And yeah, we, it was, it was too bad that, we weren't able to kind of make that character literally live longer, but it just, again, in terms of what the stories we were trying to tell in the characters and everything, it just felt like one, it was right for the Wyatt character and for Lucy to realize how important the Wyatt character was to everything. Um, but also it's always, you know, we wanted to make sure that the, the audience is always kept on their feet as even though this is an NBC show, there are going to be some surprises and, and deaths that are going to be, you know, 
stunning. Yeah. So uh, moving on a little bit. So now you've written for uh, TV uh, and you have now written for a podcast. Yeah. Uh, which uh, which medium do you like uh, more, or like what do you like about each? Um, yeah, the that's a great and easy question for me to answer, and it's it's great because it's easy to answer. Um, the the TV is great because it's it's collaborative, you know, and, and you're in a room with people every day, and specifically on Timeless was just an awesome group of people. I'm still really good friends with 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 um, them when we 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 see each other every now and then. Sean and Eric were amazing as humans, but also as showrunners to learn from. Um, and I, I just loved going to be with that group of people talking creative about these characters, about history and all that every day. The thing that's great about the podcast um, is it's just a much easier process to get something produced and out to an audience, right? Like it's a TV show. There are so many different hurdles to get through to actually make it on the air. Uh, and then to stay on the air and everything else. And it takes years and and you need people, not always, but like Sean and Eric and, and, and people like that. It's just, it, it's, it's a, it's an enormous undertaking to get a TV show on the air and a lot of things have to go right for you. Um, and yeah. podcast, not that it's, it's a huge amount of work I learned and a lot of things have to go right. And it's not easy to get a, you know, a podcast, um, like we did on like the, the JFK one on a higher I heart on the air and everything, but there's a, there's certainly a lower barrier to entry in terms of we're going to do this and it's people, an audience is going to hear it. And, you know, a lot of times TV writers and writers in general are working on things. I mean, I think the, the public would be shocked at how much, how many scripts are just sitting around that never get produced, you know, get passed on or bought, but then never made with the podcast. It always felt like, you know, we're finally going to get this story out to people and they're going to, they're going to hear it. And so the podcast is nice to short answer is that it, it felt much more likely that we were going to actually have a product to present to people. Whereas when you're starting, a, starting a new TV idea or TV show, it just feels like so many things have to go right to ever let anyone know all the work you've been, you've done. Yeah, I think I think many and I were yeah. talking about that this morning, where because um, Sean uh, Sean Ryan mentioned that a couple of times that he he knew some of the the cast and crew from other pilot that were shot and never made it to to the screen, and and we're like, but we want to know about those too. <laughs> totally, no. I was, I was listening to some podcast the other day where they were saying someone should start a, a TV channel or streaming channel that is just pilots that never got picked up. And that would be awesome. I thought that was such a good idea. Like yes. there are always famous stories of like, you know, David Schwimmer and, and, you know, Abby on our show and all these people that everyone knows they're going to be stars. It's just, is it the right, the right show at the right time? And there are all these yeah. old shows that for whatever reason, didn't get picked up of these great actors and actresses and great writers and great everything else that, you know, they didn't get picked up for some reason, who knows, but it doesn't mean they wouldn't be really fun to watch. Oh, definitely. That, that'd be yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay, speaking of podcasts, so um, we've been listening to the Who Killed JFK podcast that you're a part of. First of all, it's I've been listening since the beginning. It's absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love I'm it. Really Appreciate enjoying that. it. That's great. Um, for those who don't know what it's, what it's, I mean, obviously it's in the name, but can you tell us a bit more, a bit um, about, about the podcast and what you're trying to do on it 
Yes, absolutely. So it's a podcast um, hosted by Rob Reiner and Soledad O'Brien that um, I was the writer on and, and a, um, a producer. Um, and it's a 10-part series that will then have two bonus episodes, so 12 overall. And what we're really trying to do is based on firsthand interviews, archived interviews, talking with experts, authors, firsthand witnesses, is walk through what we think really happened um, in Dallas when President Kennedy was assassinated. Um, and we think that there, if you cut through a lot of the noise and, and listen to these people and these experts and all the research that they've done, that there's a really compelling case that, you know, what the American public and the world has kind of been told and what we're taught in schools is not accurate. And so we're trying to walk through it kind of in a very thoughtful, structured way um, that makes people feel comfortable that, you know, this isn't a crazy conspiracy theory, but this is a conspiracy. And, you know, people can kind of take away from it what they want. But if we get people thinking about it and asking questions and and looking into it themselves and not just taking um, what we're told at face value on this subject, then, um, you know, that'll be pretty exciting. Yeah, I, I've got to catch up yeah. on it. But um, yeah, as someone like I don't know a whole lot of American history because I'm from France, so I didn't study most of American history. So a lot of uh, uh, Heather, unfortunately, it's too bad that she's not able to to join us today because yeah. she's the one who does all the the history. Uh, oh, great. The history background. Uh, so I've been I've been learning a lot and uh, I, yeah, I, I and, yeah same you know well, one of the things that that I should you know the the way we kind of from the beginning went after that the Who Killed JFK podcast was making it where it's it's you know as we say in the opening it's America's greatest murder mystery right and and you know there's definitely we took inspiration from podcasts like Serial and other great cold case murder mystery type things um, and this one just happens to be about an American president um, mm -hmm. and and so. We assume a lot of people, for better or worse, will bring some knowledge and baggage of their own into what they think happened and what they know. Um, but even for someone that knows nothing about JFK, hopefully it's just a fun kind of murder mystery um, type podcast. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely behind, but I'm, I'm looking forward to to catching up for sure. Great. Thank you. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, so um, a little fun question to uh, yeah. end on. Uh, we know you have, uh, you wrote another episode, JFK episode, actually, for season two. That We're definitely going to look forward to it. But if you could go and write another episode of the show, which time period of historical event or historical figure would you choose and why? You know, it's so silly of me that as I was thinking about the about our discussion today and kind of preparing for this that I didn't predict that, that question was going to be asked already <laughs> like I'm, I'm that's so silly of me it's such a good question um you know nothing, nothing jumps out to me and you know it's funny like the 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 episode I wrote in season two was about the suffragettes and Alice Paul and after season one in a million years, I never would have thought that if I got my own episode in season two, that's what I would have wrote. And I would I would answer the question. It's a bit of a non-answer and evasive, so forgive me. But is that the fun of writing for the show and being a part of the writing for that show was not knowing exactly who or what you were going to uncover in the research. 
and be like, holy cow, that person is fascinating. I'd never, I didn't know anything really about Alice Paul. I had never heard of Mrs. Sherlock Holmes, Grace Humiston, and I'm not going to spoil anything. But when we kind of put those people together, it was like, well, this is a dream episode for me. I'm from New York. It was in New York. Um, so I, I really loved that. And I would say my dream episode would be something that is not, would not be Lincoln, would not be Kennedy, would not be FDR, would not be something that is kind of straightforward American history, but it's kind of a deeper cut of an event or person that is really off of our radar. And that hopefully a lot of people would be like, that person is awesome. I can't wait to go Google them and learn more about them. Yeah, that's uh, like the, that was very much this period of the show, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, that, that's about all the, the questions that we have uh, today. Um, can you, um, do you want to tell um, people where they can find you on social media about the podcast? Uh, sure. Like yes. Well, first I'll say the Who Killed JFK podcast you can find anywhere. It's iHeartRadio, but it's on Apple, Spotify, you name it. And um, hopefully they enjoy that. Um, I am on social media, Twitter, X, whatever we want to call it. It's, uh, I don't even know what my handle is. Let me see here. Um, it's David underscore C underscore Hoffman. Um, and I'm always happy to hear from timeless fans. And, and again, I thank you guys in particular, but everyone that still watches and, and cares about that show and those characters and everything. And it's nice to know something that I played a very small role in a few years ago, something people still care about. Yeah, it's very love. Yeah. Um, before we uh we leave, we let you be to go back to your regular uh program. Uh, do you have any kind of uh, upcoming projects? Like, what's what's coming next for you? So I'm finishing a movie based on a book. It's a fantastic book called These Silent Woods, um, which is kind of a, a father daughter thriller, um, set in the remote woods, which I'm super excited about. But if people wanted to go read the book. That would be great. It's a fantastic book. Um, and then we're we're looking with the Who Killed JFK. The response has been so fantastic that we're getting a lot of um, people interested in either a second season or spinoffs or turning it into a book that people can read and, you know, things like that. So it, it's trying to see what might make sense um, around the Who Killed JFK world and then hopefully finishing this, finishing this movie and, and seeing if anyone wants to be kind enough to allow me to make the movie. It would be great. We're definitely yeah. going to keep our eyes yeah. out for for that. Thank you. Well, thank you. Definitely. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, and talking thank to us. You. It was it was really great. No, it was my pleasure. Again, thank you guys for for keeping the the timeless flame alive. And and uh, you know, I follow you guys on on Twitter and everything else, and just appreciate yeah. um, all you do to keep people aware of of the show. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you as well. So yeah, that's the interview, guys. Uh, I hope you enjoy it because we really did enjoy it. That was really fun. Um, he was really great. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter or X, we are BIT Lifeboat. And on Instagram and threads, we're back in the lifeboat. Rate and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Amazon, Podbean, wherever you listen. It helps the show grow and helps people find us. Uh, spread the word to any of your friends or family who are Timeless fans so they can reminisce or watch along with us for the first time. Uh, our next episode we'll be covering is the season one finale, episode 16, titled The Red Scare. 
and watch and email us your thoughts at backinthelifeboatpod at gmail.com. Also, shout out to our friend Manny, who is editing and producing the episode with us. Uh, he gets to cut out all our bloopers. Yes. <laughs> so, thank <laughs> and you. And he also, like, he's, he, like, if you follow us on social media, that's like 90% Manny, because yeah, we're, I mean, personally, at least I'm fully incapable of social media. Like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I forget um, it exists. So. Yeah, same. <laughs> Pretty much same. It really uh, wasn't a difficult thing to stay off Twitter for one day. <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, uh, yeah, and if you're, if that was our first episode uh, and you discovered us uh, after Timeless Day, welcome. Uh, we really hope you stick around and we'll see you guys next time for the season one Bye. finale. I cannot wait. Bye. <laughs> Bye.